On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Zach Geller of Acoustic Cycles in Pine, Colorado. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. This week, my guest is Zach from Acoustic Cycles, and boy, do we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I just met him for the first time at the Philly Bike Expo, and I believe that was his first time exhibiting at the Philly Bike Expo. He brought a handful of bikes in his booth, including a real showstopper, full suspension mountain bike steel frame with some machine components by uh, other guests of this show. And so anyway, that bike has been making the rounds this last week or so on uh, different, you know, publications on the internet. I've been seeing a lot of press about it. It's a very cool bike, high pivot, full suspension, mountain bike. And uh, Zach has been building bikes since I think about 2019. And uh, yeah, frame building and steel, getting into titanium, did a little bit with like strider type push bikes made some titanium hammers. We talk about how his career for, I think, 12 years prior to taking frame building full-time, his career was project management in the construction sort of, you know, domain. And, uh, but he finally left that and he's been doing all of the 2022 year self-employed full-time frame building with acoustic cycles, which is pretty awesome. And so we talked a little bit about the business and making that leap and everything else. So I'm going to quit yapping and Roll the show. So I moved. I've been in Colorado. I've, I've been, been been back and forth in Colorado on the East Coast um, for quite a few years now, and I've been in Colorado for the past eight, eight or nine years. This this stint, um, I've worked in bike shops for a lot of my life, and and have lots of friends in bike shops and friends who own bike shops. So um, a couple of years ago, when I moved back, um, this will sound a little brownie, but you know I was always getting pro deals um, for bikes. So every eight, eight to 12 months, I would get a new bike, um, you know, swap parts off, have to sell it, buy a new one. And, and it was great as a young guy. I was, it was, I got the latest and greatest every year. And so it was, it was a, it was a good thing. And then eventually I just hit this, this age or this, this, this time in my life where I, I was just like, man, I wish I just had a bike that I was just stoked to ride all the time and wanted to keep and, you know, upgrade parts on and, 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 you know, run for five to 10 years and not feel like I needed the latest and greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at, at that point I was like, man, I should, I should look into like welding a frame and see what it takes. And, um, that, that moment didn't produce a frame right away. It was, it was a couple of years later, but eventually I, I bought a MIG welder right after I was having those thoughts. Um, I decided to do this, this, um, camper trail. We were, we were camping, camping every weekend and going to ride, um, you know, different spots in Colorado every weekend in the summer. So I, I took on this camper trailer project, um, this little military trailer and built this, this tank of a little trailer to be like our bug out trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the goal was that I was going to learn to make well, build that thing, learn some fabrication. And that took like a year and a half, uh, to complete. And then once I was done with that, uh, you know, I was like, Oh man, I, sh- I should really try, uh, to do a frame now. So, um, and it's so just you so happened. Well, little frame together. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> uh, I had a, I had a, I had a friend of a friend approach me because they knew I wanted, I wanted to get into bikes. And this friend of a friend 
had cut two frames in half and was trying to make a swing bike, mm-hmm. which I should have stayed away from, but I didn't. <laughs> and I said I would try it, pulled out my big welder, did, did the best I could with that little, little Hobart one, uh, with a Hobart 135. Got it together. It was not pretty. A week later, the guy came back with the same two pieces in hand. So <laughs> I said, I'd try it one more time. I don't know if we can do this with a big welder. We really need a big welder. So got these real boogery looking welds all over this frame. Uh, I never heard from him again. I don't know if it ever well. broke again, but <laughs> I definitely was not going to touch that thing anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that technically was the first frame I ever messed with. Yeah. Um, and thankfully I don't see that thing anymore, but, um, so soon after that, um, there was somebody actually really close to Denver. So uh, we live in Denver at the time. There was a guy in Salida, um, who was selling, um, an anvil jig with all the accessories, um, a TIG welder, like, um, two tubing to, to make up to 30 bikes, I believe. Holy cow. And I was like, whoa, I was like, what is this? So I, I, me and my wife went out, um, I talked to the guy on the phone a few times. We went out and check out, uh, what he had. And it, it was this guy in, in like this remote part of, well, Salida's are remote, but like even more remote part of Salida who had everything. And apparently he had, he had gotten done making his first frame and was rimming the seat tube and, and somehow blew a big hole right at the, right at the base of the seat tube and mm-hmm. bottom bracket. And he said, he said, that was it. I'm done. I'm selling this thing. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't know if I should have taken that as a sign or not, but, um, so we, 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 um, had a handshake deal. He gave me, he gave me a really good deal. So I had, I had the last, um, or the latest model of the anvil. It was like a 4.1. Um, yeah. so I had the newest model of that, like every accessory that, to go with it. Um, and then this crazy amount of tubing, they ended up, I ended up selling a bunch of it, but, um, so I got that, you know, didn't, this was years ago, but didn't know what I was doing yet. Um, decided to take some pig, pig welding lessons, uh, from a guy in Fort Collins for a little bit. And then I eventually did, um, Steve's class with, with brew bikes oh, okay. out in North Carolina. Um, and so this was, um, this is when I was, uh, I was a project manager in the construction, um, general contractor world for like 12 years. Yeah. And so I told my boss, Hey, I'm going to take a week off. And she was kind of poking me like, what are you going to do? And I was like, Oh, I'm just going to take a vacation. And she's like, she's like, you don't take vacations. Where are you going? And so I, you know, I told her I'm going to go do this class, um, to learn how to, how to weld frames. And, you know, she kind of said, Oh, so this is like the end of your construction career. And I was like, no, 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 not yet. Not yet. And she's like, Oh, okay. We'll see. And then like, <laughs> I guess, I guess three years later, I, I, uh, this January, I actually left construction. Um, so I've been doing, you know, frame building for, uh, almost a year full time now. Wow. That's awesome. So, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, I knew you didn't. So, uh, cause what, how many years ago was it that you first picked up all the anvil stuff? Uh, that was in 2019. Yes. I mean, that's just, that's recent. Your work really strikes me. It's, it's really strong stuff. And I didn't know you until, you know, a couple of years ago and, uh, no, you're doing great work pretty quickly. I mean, clearly you take to it. Yeah. I I mean, well, I appreciate that first off. Um, second off, I mean, it is, um, it is super challenging. Like I've had a bunch of people reach out to me over the last year who are trying to get into it and and, you know, ask for advice or, or tools you should get. And the number one thing, if somebody young reaches out to me and, and asks about it, 
I say you're going to get frustrated. You're going to screw up. It's going to be tough and demoralizing. That's, that's the way for everybody. If, if somebody didn't encounter that, they're lying to you or, or they just haven't encountered it yet. But, yeah. um, yeah, but, but also to that point when, um, so when I was in the construction industry, um, you know, I'll always work as hard or harder than the the next person next to me. But, um, I think passion or when you're really interested in something, you're going to, you're going to learn or work to learn it much quicker or, you know, better or discover new ways. Or, um, just before this interview, I was, I was thinking about, you know, why, why is frame building different to me than as a job than to that construction was, um, you know, I, we just met in person finally at, at the Philly bike expo. I would never go to a construction expo in a million years. I would (laughs) never spend my, my free time going to do more construction. And, and all I want to do right now is like do more bike things. And and I'm working on bikes, you know, 24 seven. So I think that was like a, that's like a big aha moment. It's like, I want to do this. Yeah. So when you say you were in construction for 12 years doing project management, you weren't really swinging hammers so much. You were like, you know, or orchestrating jobs and resources and, and that sort of thing. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I was, um, I was more on the corporate side of things. I would usually be on site where the construction was happening, but no, I was never really uh, swinging hammers or digging holes. And um, I, at the end of projects, I usually was doing those things, even though I shouldn't have been. Um, yeah, because I did probably kind of like more, working way more fun. Hands. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it was it was way more fun than punching a keyboard um, all day. So, um, but but to um, sound that I. I do think like most things or most careers or jobs that you do, they're all a form of project management, right? Yeah. So like, and like, especially, um, you know, I was, I was listening to the podcast you just had with, with austere. Yeah. Um, and what you guys are talking about, like, you know, lean manufacturing or setting up processes and schedules and, but like, that's all project management. Yeah. The, so I think it all, um, one of my favorite podcasts, the With Intolerance podcast, which is a little bit more on the CNC machining side. They're doing a book club right now, and they're reading uh, Elihu Goldratt's Critical Chain. And that book is all about product, project management. And, um, you know, and, and I mean, I think it, it illustrates that, like, and, and he, he's more famous for his book, The Goal. And it's a similar kind of thing where it's like at first you're reading and it seems like it's kind of about you know, like manufacturing process, but like you zoom out and it's like, like running a manufacturing business is just management. And like, you have to manage everything in your life and in the world. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's valuable to think about because it kind of helps you like just develop a, a framework for thinking about everything that needs to happen. Essentially everything that needs to happen. There's like some sort of process yeah. and things need to be scheduled right. And given the right amount of attention and all that. Right. I mean, and like in the construction world, we would, we would call ourselves like GCs who self-perform work, you know, they're like GCs who just, you know, like handle or manage the strings and just manage people. And then there's also general contractors that will self-perform portions of their work. Yeah. Um, so that's what I, how I, I essentially view like you, like you and CNC or me or other frame builders um, yeah. in the frame building world. Yeah. Yeah. No, like uh, somebody who was doing what I did, they could just, they could do all of the design and they could maybe even inventory and assemble and ship and they could just like, you know, job out the CNC machining to someone else. And, you know, they would perform essentially the same function, but, but you could also do it all in house. And it's like, well, give them the choice. That's what I want to do. You know? And I think for frame builders, that's part of what you're buying is like, 
you know, someone's blood, sweat and tears. And like, they're just like, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't get the same quality control when you outsource it. Not to say that nobody should ever do that, but it's just not the same thing. Right. For sure. Yeah. So anyway, I interrupted. Yeah, and I think that was, no, you're good. I, I think that was also like part of the appeal with um, getting in frame building was the um, like, holy cow, you like, you like, it, it's hard to get a USA made bike these days. I mean, there's, there's more, if you're in the know, there's, there's more options these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, m- most bikes come out of, you know, the same factory in Taiwan, which not to say those aren't great bikes. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just crazy how, how the supply chain relies so much on, on things outside of our, not only locally, but like outside of our country. It's like, yeah. um, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is wild. And, uh, and there's, I feel like, you know, it seems to me like 20, 30 years ago, the, uh, you know, American bike manufacturing world was a lot different because you had companies like Fat City Cycles mm-hmm. and you had, you know, right. uh, I don't know, Ibis and uh, Seven Cycles and whatever it is. There's all these different places, you know, uh, that, that have made and manufactured bikes. And I feel like more and more what you see is the little artisan builders and less of the production mm. facilities but I, I don't also have like that accurate like i have anecdotal hix, historical data so right. i don't even know if my numbers are mm. at all correct but well and also i um to that to that point like as far as you know artists and builders um i know that you bought you got you have a reed squeeb right you still yeah. have that thing yeah so like that they're able to make you know something like 200 or 250 frames a year i think yeah, is what Adam told me, and and they're all made in the U.S. and that's that's awesome. Like if you if you want, you can get something in the U.S. that's super capable. That's you know, I think it's what at 160 or 150 millimeter rear. It's rear got travel. a lot. Yeah, I think it's it's configurable. There's a like a, okay yeah, um, adjustment thing. But I, yeah, I, I think we need like like more of that. Like they've they've figured it out. Like they're they're not you know, double these manufacturers in Taiwan, they're actually the way the trend's going, they're actually going to be cheaper soon than, than the big guys. Yeah. Um, just cause it, it seems like every year specialized in track, they're all, um, they're all raising their retail prices more and more. And I, and I've heard it's only going up. Yeah. It's actually pretty astonishing so, when you look at the, that squeeb, for instance, it's like, Uh, And I need to have Adam on the podcast again sometime because even the first time I had him on the podcast, we didn't cover everything that we should have. But um, I mean, they have parts that they're machining on their like 1993 Fidal CNC mill that's like Mm -hmm. surfaced with ball mill contouring tool paths like that's and I I assume that's all 7000 grade aluminum, which I mean, that's hard to even source that bar stock set like Mm 7005, right, that that you would weld. Yeah. it's hard to even source that bar stock, but then to do all that machining and surfacing on like a dinosaur of a machine, that's not necessarily super reliable. And then to put that into a package where like everything is really thought out and really tested because Adam really knows how to ride. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just, it's amazing that they can do that for, you know, I don't know, less than like five or 10 grand. It's, it's a hell of a lot of engineering and fabrication work that they put together for a super reasonable price. And, um, was the last Friday I talked to Evan with uh, Contra bikes. I don't know if you've seen his high pivot. They, they, um, he's had a few prototypes that have been on pink bike and they recently just tested it. Um, okay. no, on I pink bike. And, and I, um, well check him out. I, he, he called me cause I, um, 
I had referenced them in, in a Pink Bike article. Um, and so he gave me a call and super nice. Talked to him for like two and a half hours last nice. Friday. Um, he knows an incredible amount um, as far as the, on the engineering side of these bikes. It, it's crazy. And on the test, they, um, the two Pink Bike guys had the fastest descent times on his bike, wow. which was crazy. Like, and we, we were talking about just, you know, like, you know, Santa Cruz or Specialized or, or Track or Giant. They all, I, I think most of them pay outside engineering companies to, to facilitate their design. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for one guy to design something that Pink Bike, like, proves over multiple times that this is the fastest descending bike out of this group of five or six, that was, like, crazy to me. Yeah. No, it's wild. I don't know. I, I would... I would like to know more about how the big companies, the giants and specialized and treks and, and whoever mm. Santa Cruz and whatever, how they go about development and iteration and testing. Cause mm. I don't know anything about that world. And so that would be excellent to learn about. And it, it would be cool actually to share that with everybody on this podcast, except that like, <laughs> it's not really that related anymore to what the podcast is about. So, um, you know, if somebody right. wants to refer the right person who's willing to be a guest, then uh, we could have them on here and, and get to know their story. It'd be cool if they also had a, a hand in like the handmade world so they could relate it to something else. But, right. but I am curious, like, because sometimes I see people, yeah, like Adam Procise, who's just doing like incredible work. And then I wonder, I'm like, mm-hmm. are these other big companies who have presumably massive budgets by comparison, are they even doing as thorough of research? Like, I don't know. Like, it, I don't see it. So like, how would I know? Right. Right, right, exactly. But like, also with the, so with that conversation that we're having, it um, to kind of tie it back to frame building. Yeah. I mean, um, I, like a a hardtail frame. You know, you can pretty much go off a convention and be safe mm-hmm. um, as far as you know tube thicknesses or or placements or yes. um, you know that we've been doing this for so long. It, you, you'd be hard pressed to find something that was like, you know, if you put two triangles together, you're gonna get a bike that's decently strong. Yeah. But it's just when you start introducing these, um, you know, these levers and, you know, everything that comes with suspension, then it, then it really ups the ante. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which, that, that's the part that like, I think I'm getting more interested in. I, it would be cool to see more. Uh, and, and there's definitely more frame builders starting to do full suspension. Um, so I, I am excited and curious to see, like, where and how far that will go. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool for me. Like I've developed a, a reasonable, you know, aptitude with CAD and machining, and I have a lathe and mm-hmm. a mill and Fusion 360, and I'm in a position where I could engineer and I could build a full suspension bike. But what I don't have is I don't know how to ride a mountain bike worth a damn. I like doing it. I like <laughs> riding a mountain bike in the woods. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy it, but like I'm just not very good at it. So like I'm not the kind of person you want to like develop a bike from the ground up. You need like a really good rider who's also really mechanically adept, who also really understands manufacturing, who's just in the right position mm-hmm. that they can focus their time on it. And that's not me, but like, but I love the the thought of that. And for someone who that is a good fit for, like I applaud you, you just go for it, like get into it. Like what you're doing with the bike that you had at the Philly Bike Expo, I mean, that was, that's beautiful work. And and you also, you got to pull together a bunch of people that I know to help you machine some of those parts. And that's really cool too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was super fun to make a thing, very fun and very frustrating, but, um, <laughs> I had been working on, on this frame for like a year and a half. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, obviously I have this cool thing that I can stare at now and, uh, for Sean Handerhan, I did finally get to ride it and 
Um, so far, it's been a lot of fun. That's um, awesome. But it, yeah, it was. Um, I, I, I'm waiting on a stiffer coil, and then I'll take it back out. But yeah, so far it's still together in one piece. I, I hit some decent sized jumps on it the other day. That's um, awesome. It was a lot of fun. So okay, so um, uh, to to zoom back in on the the kind of story that you were telling, you were working as a project manager in construction and parts of that were clearly working for you, but you wanted, you wanted to explore something new that maybe like scratching the itch of what is it like just making something with your hands that you can take ownership of, or is it that it's bikes specifically and not just building things for, you know, holding companies or like, what is it about frame building that, that pulled you in? Um, well, so I, I definitely really like working with my hands. Um, I was not getting that in construction and, and, um, while I was working in construction, it, it did afford me, like I was making a very, you know, a very decent salary. So I, I, I basically paid for all of my tools before I quit. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. And we actually, um, kind of right before the pandemic, uh, my wife and I, we moved to the mountains right outside Denver and we bought a house that had a thousand square foot shop Hell attached yeah. to it. That's awesome. Um, with the thoughts that eventually I'd, I'd, you know, I'd have something in there, and and that I mean, it, it's awesome to not have to pay a, a rent for a shop space right now. And I, Absolutely. I was commuting like two hours, yeah, commuting two hours each day, and now my commute is like two steps as opposed to two hours, mm -hmm. uh, which is incredible. Yeah, and if you um, bought it right I, before the pandemic, that's great timing. <laughs> I, I mean, we told. We obviously didn't see that coming, but we totally lucked out in that regard. And, and, you know, when everyone was being told to stay indoors, like we, we were literally like right on the, the doorstep of the Colorado trail. So I could hop on my bike and be in Durango, you know, That's if awesome. I didn't mind biking for 14, 14 days. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, um, construction, um, I honestly just really started to hate, um, just the hours and, and a lot of the people we were dealing with. Um, my coworkers were great. I still am really good friends with my coworkers and they, um, I think people can like make or break any situation or career or job you're in, yeah. um, for sure. But I, I was just like sick of, you know, working 14 hour days and then commuting two hours and, and not, and not really, I mean, exercising my brain, but not in the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wasn't, I wasn't passionate about it. I mean, I, I thought I was going to be doing more hands-on stuff and I, I really, you know, most days I was like a glorified accountant. Yeah. Um, you know, for the construction company. So, um, eventually while I was doing construction, I kind of started, um, you know, just building as many frames as I could and, and getting more familiar with, um, all the different aspects and setting up the shop. And, um, I would come home all the time with all kinds of weird tools. Like I, I came home one day with a bridge port on our trailer and my wife was like, what the hell did you just buy? <laughs> um, and <laughs> she was, you know, she had her uh, hand on the phone and, uh, to call 911 when it tipped over or if it tipped over on me or something. That's funny. Um, and then came, came home one day with a, with a 4,000 pound piece of granite. That's um, awesome. I got in trouble a little bit for that one. Um, but now, yeah, we got a, we got a pretty stock shop, got, um, a middle of ways, uh, nice bandsaw. And, uh, I'm, I'm the proud owner of a lot of Cobra tools. Thanks to you. Yeah, no, I appreciate um, that. Um, so yeah, I just eventually, um, there were, I, I jotted some things down. There are a few reasons, um, for construction. And, and I think, um, I'm, I'm like a pretty risk averse person. Um, uh, so my wife was like a big, uh, you know, my biggest cheerleader and proponent for like, let's like do something you love. Like, like you're not going to contribute to yourself or to like, not to 
be like preachy, but like society by like doing something you hate and like yeah. not taking, you know, not taking anything further, like just doing the bare minimum, which, which I understand. So, um, I was like, yeah, maybe I should try this, this thing, um, that I'm actually passionate about. And I'm sure a lot of people feel this, um, especially like within our generation, like we're, you know, we're kind of raised, like, you know, go to school, get a job, do this thing, have kids and that's it. Right. Um, and so part of this was, I, you know, I wanted to do something I really liked. I wanted a better work life balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know if frame building necessarily gives you that. Depends on how busy you are. <laughs> but um, at least you, at least I'm enjoying it as I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, as I'm spending all my time. Yeah. Um, but also, we we had our first kid in um, in April of this year, um, and I really wanted to like be around to like watch this thing you know grow up. I didn't want to be you know, on a construction site for 14 hours. I mean, I, if I was still in construction, I literally wouldn't see this human, um, during the week. So, um, that was another big reason for, uh, for the change. And and also, um, again, not to sound preachy, I I wanted to like teach this kid that you can do things in life that, that you like and, and try some scary things and, and, and succeed and, and you may fail too. And that's fine. Um, but I, I do think like in our society, like failure is very looked down upon. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's hard for people to try to do something outside their norm. I like um, what you, yeah, that point too, because something that I'm thinking about more this year is the element of like, uh, my dad worked for himself. He was a farmer and, uh, you know, he, from the time that he was like five years old, he was driving tractors and, you know, helping out and mm-hmm. whatever. And he did that until he retired and he never, I don't think he ever had a job for anybody else. That was like, he just, you know, he worked with his brothers and they, they had a farm for all those years and then he finally sold it. And now my uncle and his son run it. But anyway, just growing up, it was like, just, it was like regular life, you know, like doesn't everybody's dad have a loader right. tractor you can borrow for like, you know, right. projects and like, doesn't, uh, doesn't everybody's, you know, de- like, I think there's something to be said for that thing where you see your parent, like, because uh, like when you own your own business, you're you're like you live and die by your own actions. So, you know, like if you're unprepared in the spring and crops need to get planted, but like you didn't do the maintenance on your equipment or like you whatever, then it's like, oh, shit. So you have to like really take a lot of ownership for stuff. And then mm-hmm. when it's working, uh, I don't know. Anyway, so it's just like I think I've always kind of underestimated the element that seeing that modeled for me impacted me and then recently i've been noticing that more that it's like it always seemed kind of attainable and normal that like uh that you could just you know like work for yourself and be self-employed and so i think that's made a big impact on me more than i realized for a while to have that modeled for me and so i think that there's something to be said for that like if you have kids of your own you know you just want to show them that like you can do more than (laughs) work for someone else not that that's so bad for me that sounds kind of like a nightmare but like uh, it's, you know, for some people, it's a good fit. Right. No. And, and I think, um, whichever way makes you happy or, or, um, I, I work with people in construction who, who love what they did every day and, and loved the problem solving that came with that. Um, and, and I, you know, applaud those people. And I think that's great for them. I, I wasn't as into the problem solving or the day to day of that particular career. Um, I definitely think like, like when you're talking about your, you know, your dad as a, as a farmer, like, 
my, my father-in-law, he's a cattle farmer in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's like funny to him when, when we were talking, when we were talking about like corporate world, he's like, what are you talking about? Like, you just, just, just do everything yourself. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, he, <laughs> and, and, and he like proof, like he, like the proof is in the pudding. Like he, like he came up to our shop, uh, or came up to our house a few months ago and, and I was trying to offload, um, a sandblaster I just bought. And so I was talking about how to get it off. And he's like, he's like, basically Zach stopped talking and just like pulled out a pipe and showed me how to move a whole machine with one pipe. And I'm like, yeah, how do you know how to do all this? He's like, I'm a farmer. I do everything myself. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, I would, I would say like frame builders are like the farmers of like the fabrication world. Like <laughs> I was dry, I was drywalling my shop the other day. Like I, you know, and talking to Dan, like when Dan, you were interviewing Danielle, like she yeah. built an entire shop or stuff like, yeah. like, Frame builders have to do everything. I mean, you don't have, I mean, some people do, but you don't have exorbitant amounts of money to, to pay somebody to do something. Exactly. So we're all electricians. We're all drywallers. We're all, yeah. uh, we're all everything. It's pretty cool. I think also I've worked a little bit in trades, not on the project management level, but like I've worked in construction just a little, little bit like as, you know, like a gopher helper person and, um, and mm. minimal trim work and, and that sort of thing. But anyway, when I've gotten to know drywallers and plumbers and these guys who are like really talented and really good at what they do, cause I got to work in some like kind of swanky houses for a little while. And mm. anyway, the, like what was weird about it to me is it seemed like a lot of them, like the drywall guy was like, just like God mode, but he didn't, he didn't know anything about plumbing and he wasn't, he wasn't really interested in plumbing, right. you know, like that was just, wasn't his domain. Mm-hmm. He couldn't monetize it. He didn't, he didn't like making things for the sake of them. It was just like, he was a drywall guy. And so he had the stilts and he had the tools and he could like, just, he could hang drywall really fast, really perfect. And the plumbing guy had his truck and he had those tools and he knew everything about it that he needed to know, but he wasn't a nerd about it. He didn't just like making things cause mm-hmm. it scratched an itch. Maybe, but like, I think there's a lot of tradespeople where it's like, it's just their job and they get good at it because they do right. it every day through repetition. And I think frame building is a little bit different because it's like, I think a lot of people approach it because they just, they love, they love making stuff and they also love bikes. So that's like the Venn diagram. Like right. I love making things. I also love, you know, pens and watches and bikes and some other things and guitars. And so like, I'm going to make some mm-hmm. of these things or whatever. And no, and, and, that is um, interesting. You bring up trades. Like uh, I've also been thinking about recently. You know, I, I went to uh, I went to engineering school. Uh, I went to grad school after that. I, you know, I, I I did those things, and and, and I'm um, grateful I was able to do those things. Um, you know, use a lot of the stuff I learned there, but also you know I'm starting to realize more that um, you know trade schools those are important, and, and the trades are important, and, and also working in construction, I could see how having a good drywaller or having a good electrician, all that's dying out. And we're, we're so like tech focused, get into tech. Like there still needs to be a lot of hands-on people or, or nothing's going to get done. And, and now that I'm in this more hands-on role, as opposed to what I was doing, you know, kind of on the corporate side of construction, mm-hmm. it's, it's like got me thinking like this, this new human that we just made, like if you want to go to trade, like some kind of trade, hell yeah. Like more power to you. Yeah. Like, if that makes you happy to do things with your hands and, you know, it may not be doing artisan things. It may not, you know, maybe, maybe being an electrician. And, you know, when I was in construction and I, I would um, sit with a plumber electrician and go over some things, it was incredible. The amount of knowledge they had on certain things and certain codes. Yeah. And I'm like, Holy crap. I wouldn't, I couldn't have learned what you just told me in one sentence in my four years of college. Like what you know yeah. is incredible. Yeah. 
Um, and it's, yeah, it's kind of sad that that I think we're moving more and more away from that. Um, yeah. but it sounds like, you know, there, there are some, there are some people who are trying to you know, make sure that stays around and comes back a little stronger, which is good. A couple podcasts ago when I was talking to Devin at Lycan Precision, I had mentioned that like, oh yeah, if I was 18 again and I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't going to college, maybe I'd just start a lawn care business. And then I was joking about that. And then he's like, oh, I have a friend who owns a multi-million dollar lawn care business. And then I've had a couple <laughs> discussions about that since, but I think there's certain spots, you know, because there's been such a deprioritization of like blue collar hands-on work. I think there's just like a general mm -hmm. shortage of like competent, reliable people who are willing to do the work and not everywhere all the time. It doesn't mean that like, if you go out and mow lawns, you will automatically be compensated well. But I think there's like, I, th I think there's a lot of opportunity for that sort of thing. Like, especially if you're a self-starter and maybe you like, you know, you buy your own equipment or something. I, I don't know. Like I'm talking out of turn because mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, that's <laughs> my impression that I get from a lot of this trade stuff is that like, especially like if you just went and you just took a job working for somebody, they may or may not value you well enough to like pay you really well. I don't know. But like, yeah, I think like there's a lot of opportunity in it for people who are motivated and self-starters and which I guess is probably true of most career paths, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's just kind of sad cool. that like guidance counselors and our parents' generation and teachers, and they're all just like, you better go to college. And as if like every other thing is right. like, death sentence. Well, yeah. And, and I think like, um, there's an incredible amount of people who work hard and, and who are, you know, self-starters like you're saying, but I do think like once you can, once you can match that or pair that with like passion, then like you really get, like cool things about people. Yeah. Like, like, like you, for example, like all the stuff, like I, I, you posted what probably less than six months ago about the, um, you know, the, the stay slayer and, and now you're selling it. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's well, crazy. Like, yeah, and if that, you, that came together pretty quick. I mean, Joel Greenblatt did, you know, like it's based on his. So like, I didn't have to like right, 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 conceptualize right. it, but yeah, I mean, every part of it is, is completely changed a little bit <laughs> every part of it is a little bit different. well but and then i made it too and if you weren't yeah if you weren't passionate about that you it would have taken you much longer yeah, in theory certainly. to to come out with how, how to you know how to make that thing and 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 have it for sale already like i just think yeah um, no i busted ass you can definitely that. tell was... when people are yeah yeah I, I was i was i was pretty surprised how quick it came out <laughs> And it <laughs> I thought it was going to happen faster. I was not really that you could, not that you couldn't do it. I'm just, no, I'm just yeah. like, damn, like there are a lot of moving parts in that. Thing. There's a lot of parts and some of them are complicated and like just details, like lingering details, like, Oh, I need millimeter scales. Like you just think millimeter scales would be easy. Cause like they're, they're simple. Right. But like, they're not simple to do affordably, reliably, elegantly. Like that stuff is actually not that easy. So you know, trying to right, figure right, out my right. way around. And there's a multiple of them. There's some that are laser etched and there's some that are CNC engraved. And it's like those lingering details, like you, you can't ship the whole assembly until it's actually ready. And so, you know, like having sunk right. so much time and money into it, it's like, you want to get it finished, but like, you got to finish everything. Right. And, and, um, like, to, so to tie passion, like right now we're talking about bikes. Like we, we didn't get enough. We, we didn't have enough during our day jobs of bikes. To where now we need to talk about it more at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. When, but, how many construction podcasts did you do? We talking to other uh, project managers about how they were going to, you know, yeah. <laughs> if, if I met somebody at a party who was a project manager, I would walk the other direction. You feel like that's cool. Well, I get that in my day to day anymore. Yeah. 
I want to meet somebody who does something um, different. <laughs> right, exactly. But like when you pair this passion thing, like you like you start to make this community, like which is what I yeah. you know what this podcast is, right? It's like it's a it's a platform for a community to to come you know and talk to you, share stories, and then all the community around to listen to it. Yeah. Um. And and like with community, like I could not have made that full suspension bike without the community that's around. Um. I mean. So just to list the people that help, helped me. So Sean Handerhan, he had, he had made a full suspension like a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, and so I started picking his brain real early, like, Hey, I want to make this high pivot thing. Um, give me a bunch of advice on, on his, on what, what he did with his, you know, like some do's and don'ts or things that were issues for him, uh, things that worked for him. Um, and then also, you know, he's, he's a machinist, uh, by trade. And so he, he did my dropouts, the pivot clevises, um, the main pivot, and then uh, a few other things um, that I, you know, my, my clevises needed a fifth axis. So I, I never in a million years would have access to that if it weren't for him. Yeah. So this, this bike wouldn't exist without him. Um, Adam Procise, um, who was also on this podcast, um, he did my rockers um, on his home machine. He has a fiddle and now to now at his uh at his yeah, house which is so cool uh which is pretty crazy yeah which is pretty crazy um and you know he, he was really good about giving me advice um you know as far as like machine ability you know i went a little radius crazy when i when i first designed it so <laughs> you know he, he gave he gave me a lot of good advice uh to not piss off other machinists um uh-huh. so no it was like i couldn't have done it without him and then um talked to Chris at 44 bikes a few times. I mean, I, I've talked, I've, I've read Chris at 44 bikes, his blog a bunch. Um, super helpful. If he didn't, if he didn't have that stuff in print, I don't know where the hell I'd be. And, and that goes for like a lot of people like Walt, Walt, um, at Walt works. Yeah. Um, like I, I, I mentioned him in, in, in our pink bike article and, and he commented like, how did he get a hold of it? I've been blogging since 2015. Um, well, it's the internet and anything you put on the internet, you can always find, but uh-huh. you know, I always, you know, I, I reference his stuff and, you know, Scalar has a bunch of stuff. And like, if people weren't blogging and posting pictures and, you know, Instagram, you know, is, is wonderful and, you know, terrible at the same time. But, you know, you can learn a lot from a picture of somebody's bike, um, you know, to see what they're doing or, or like, you know, a lot of people are posting build, um, you know, build photos that may not make sense to, you know, like a lay person, but like, you know, as friend owners that we get. Um, and so like, yeah, this crazy community has, essentially made this full suspension bike um and like tons like ashley from ashley anodized it you know did my rocker and and cranks uh for ignite cranks who i also talked to uh, a decent amount now and um king cage out of durango like it's crazy like how many colorado parts i was able to get on this Mm -hmm. um but then not only that but like usa and like north american parts like pinner machine shop and in in whistler he did my my trimming bolts for me and you know he gave some good advice on on like boring size um, so yeah, it was like just a really cool, like, you know, conglomerate of the community that really helped me produce this thing, Yeah, uh, which was like, just made my passion go up even more. It's like cool to like be around these people who are also as excited. And then like together we can like make some really crazy things that, I mean, you would have told me two years ago that I was now a suspension bike in my garage that I made. I would have, you know, would be really insane. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. I love the collaborative nature of it and how, for instance, doing this podcast and you're going to be episode 61, I've gotten to sit down 
and talk for on average like 90 minutes or two hours or something with all these guests people who maybe i already knew them a little bit and some in some cases they were like good friends but like uh, i get to know all these people and i really get to know their story better and like wow it's really special you know like when you work with other people it's like a similar thing it's like you you get a little bit of their expertise and their perspective and you get to build a relationship and just like the people that you get to work with is really special working as a frame builder you might typically work more by yourself and then you just have like vendors mm -hmm. where you know quality bicycle products and you know paragon machine works and bike fab supply whatever but like when you truly get to collaborate with other people it's pretty special especially when it's people that you can learn from and you can share with and maybe you can all learn from each other it's like really cool yeah no for sure um and it's funny like when we went to philly bike expo mm -hmm. um i like i mentioned to my wife like we were having these long conversations with, like other builders and i was like i think it's probably because we all like work in like dark workshops by ourselves <laughs> and you know we're finally like getting our words out that we would normally get out if we had coworkers. So yeah it's the uh frame builder summer camp everybody says but yeah i think philly <laughs> the philly show really is um i've only been to nabs really once as an exhibitor and then once i went and i just poked around for a couple hours but uh that one nabs doesn't happen in the same city every year so like i feel like there's less mm -hmm. maybe continuity right. well it doesn't happen anymore but uh, it always moved right, around right. and the philly show though uh philly bike expo it's like it's in the same place and you can i don't know it's like it's just more of like a tradition and a routine and and then like i feel like if you're a frame builder it's almost more valuable to go just for like the social element of getting to see your other you know bike industry friends as it is for right for any other reason yeah it was, it was like um getting to meet your instagram friends that's yeah. what I, is what I also told my wife. Which is funny because I've been yeah. doing this so long now. I think the first one I went to was 2014. And then I have to remember and imagine that like, yeah, like you, you were saying, you know, with your with your career prior to this, like you would never have done anything like that. And if you did, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have meant that much to you maybe. Right. Yeah. It, like, it would have been forced on me for I sure. Would, I think if I was forced out of the whole frame building world, if I went and left and did something else, I think that I would end up missing that part of it a lot. Yeah, for sure. Like this weird connection to like these these weirdos all over the world who have the same weird <laughs> interest and yeah. Uh, okay. So anyway, where were we with the <laughs> the main story? Sorry, big big tangent. Uh huh. But yeah, you had. I mean, um, you had started building bikes. Um, I mean, I can lead you with a question if you don't have any other thoughts on that. You know, just about you know, like figuring it out essentially how you were figuring it out um well yeah so um took that class in 2019 with with steve Bikes, got home and i and i uh several times i've heard in the podcast you know it's easy to get yourself in that class take that class but i think that second bike is like really hard to do on your own it's like okay i'm gonna buy some tubes and i'm gonna buy the fittings of paragon and i got everything right and i got a jig and i'm like okay let's let's do this and then you kind of wait you're like well I really know what I'm doing. Let's, let's practice and dig a little more. Like, um, so I think that's a common theme for a lot of people. Um, I, I got that second bike out like fairly quickly after my, um, after my class, which I think was a good decision. Um, and then like started pumping out a few more. And then, and then I think like with most builders, you know, friends, friends and friends of friends and, and coworkers were wanting bikes. And then, um, people that were questioning my boss were asking for bikes and they're like, Oh man, Zach's getting 
decent at this. He's probably going to quit soon. And I was trying to keep that, um, you know, under wraps, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it was fun. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I've still have friends. Well, I still have a lot of bikes with a lot of friends. And so I can kind of like check in, like see how the bike's doing, like yeah. anything you would tweak. So it's like my, my own good, like research pool and, um, you know, any failures yet? No, nothing. And I'm like, oh, have you tried any big drops yet? So try to talk my friends into doing some crazy things to try to break the bikes. But, <laughs> um, no one's had any big drops yet, but, um, I've, I've been riding, I think frame number three or four for like almost four seasons now. And I have definitely not been nice to it. Um, in, in 2019, so I took that class, came back, started making a few frames. So like early 2020, I sold my, uh, my last full suspension bike. So I, I, I had sold my downhill bike previously. Um, and then, uh, I was selling my, my, uh, my trail bike, um, because I decided I would not ride another full suspension bike unless I made it. So that was like early 2020. Um, nice. and so last week was the first time I'd ridden a full suspension in a very long time in like three seasons, That's awesome. Um, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So I've been on this, this hardtail that I've like beat the crap out of, like I've, you know, I've hucked it like 10 foot to flat just to see if it would break. And, Jeez. um, the thing has been a tank. So, um, I might have to retire it. She's been good, but yeah, like it was very strange last week to be, um, we, we live on five acres. So I kind of made this like this little loop around our, our property that has um, some decent jumps and a, and a few drops. Um, and so I took the full suspension out last week and I was like, Whoa, what is this? This squishy rear end. It was, it was crazy to feel again. Um, in a good way. Yeah. That's you that's, like and like the way it in, in a very, in a very good way. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's very nice to be back on a, a full suspension bike. So, um, um, if you don't mind, let's talk about that bike. Like, what did you, what were the biggest challenges? What do you feel like you learned? What are you itching to, to do different on the next one? Is there going to be a next one? Uh, so the goal is, um, so we, I, I kind of was building this thing under wraps. Um, I didn't tell that many people about it. And then we released it at Philly, um, like a month ago. Um, and we got some really good, um, response from it i had a I got a bunch of emails hey when when is it ready for sale um you know it's still a prototype um i finished it like two days before i started driving to philly so i, I hadn't even <laughs> ridden it before i got to philly um finally got to ride it it is a lot of fun um but I, I really wanted to make a high pivot uh steel frame um mainly because um i i i used to downhill a lot more um i don't mind going you know doing uphill but um, the real joy for me in mountain biking are, are the, you know, techie downhills. Um, so I really wanted to make the best, uh, descending trail bike I could. Um, and so I, I was going to go, I always knew I was going to go high pivot, uh, with some kind of four bar, uh, linkage, um, or, or horse linkage. Um, I think that goes back to like my, my first real serious mountain bike was, uh, a 2002 Kona Stinky Deluxe. It was, uh, I don't know if you know it. It's like, it was like blue and silver with orange haze, disc brakes. <laughs> and I kicked myself every day for selling that thing. Um, <laughs> but that was, that was a four bar. And so I was like, I'm always going to go back to that. Um, so, you know, I used uh, Fusion 360, Linkage, Bike CAD. Um, you use those, you know, three programs congruently. And then 
Um, I also made a really conscious decision to buy a, a 3D printer when I started developing this, nice. um, which was which was a uh, huge asset. Uh, when just I, I essentially printed the whole rear end and all the linkages, um, mainly to check for clearances. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty crazy how how accurate you can get with 3D printers these days. Oh yeah. Um, I went with the press the Pressa that you know most people nice. have nowadays. Um, I, I bought the one that you have to assemble yourself and I'm still shocked to this day that once I assembled that thing, I was like, no way this is printing. Like, no way. Like I was, you know, reading the instructions three different times. I was like, this just doesn't feel like it's straight or am I doing this right? But it calibrated itself and it, and it was super accurate. Um, but it printing the whole rear end and all the linkages, it saves so much time and money um, in mistakes I would have made. Um, yeah. in metal, which would have been really unfortunate. So you, um, that was a really... You actually caught things and Sorry. then revised them based on the way that it printed in reality. Yep. And I actually... Um, so there's a, there's a bridge that connects the two rocker links. Um, and I had already given all my files to Adam. Um, he was in a, he was in a machine, those, those links for me, uh, or, or he had actually machine the links. He was going to machine the bridge like in a few days. And I was like, I need to check this one more time. So I went back to my model, put everything together. And then I had noticed I hadn't taken into account my, my hardware, my linkage, my hardware was getting really close to my C tube. So I checked it on my physical model and I was like, yeah, damn, that's getting really close. So I quickly jumped on the computer, sent him a, a shot out of a message and said, you need to make that bridge. Uh, was like five millimeters longer um, to give me a little more space because I, I hadn't taken into account my my hardware um, and I and I just I printed a little um, um, a little bolt that I was was planning to use I printed it on a 3D printer and then fitted it up to my model and I was like oh yeah there's the problem mm-hmm. um, so like even just that like I would have a huge problem on my hands if I hadn't if I hadn't checked that yeah but um, yeah I, I mean it's it, it was a big design challenge. I mean, I, I had used CAD in an architectural sense when I was in construction, but never, um, never like a with a 3D model that that has movement. Yeah. So I did have to teach teach myself a lot a lot more in depth, um, you know, fusion. Um, yeah. But fusion through 60 is it, it is pretty intuitive, um, as far as. Um, as far as 3D programs go, I think it's it's one of the easier ones. Yeah, um, but the, it definitely was a challenge. I, yeah, and I use Fusion 360 a lot, and the, mainly I use it either for CAD and designing solid model stuff, or I use it for programming the CNC mill. So that's like the CAM side, the computer-aided manufacturing side. And it also has like a sculpt environment. It has like an electrical engineering thing, and it has a... Uh, it has some other sheet metal thing and some other nonsense that mostly doesn't get used by that many people as far as I know. But the right. the things that I hear about it is that the cam side where you program for CNC milling and fusion is quite good. And it's similar to the quality of um, like HSM works. It's pretty similar to, I think, HSM works. And there's like master cam, which is like maybe more professional. And then there's like the, the real high level cnc machine programming ones and whatever anyway so like there's the cnc machine side and then there's the cad side and you know like the industry standard is like uh solidworks 
And you hear right, from a right. lot of people that like, oh yeah, Fusion is a toy. And I think when I hear people say that, they're talking about the CAD side, but I've never used SolidWorks, so I don't really know. And it kind of seems like Fusion 360 is plenty good enough. But I think when it comes to like multi-part assemblies and joints and um, how you how you like uh, constrain the joints so that you have like, you know, swim arm, swing arms with like multiple pivoting locate. Like I do think that Mm -hmm. I've never had much of a need to model that motion inside of an assembly, but uh, I don't know. Do you, does your model actually have all the correct joints so that you can just move the whole stroke of the articulation and everything moves accordingly? Yeah, that's how I was tracking my uh, my seat uh, seat clearance or wow. to my tire, my rear tire. That's so, impressive. Yeah, it was it was a learning process for sure. Um, I, I, I have a a buddy who sorry, go ahead. Well, it's, uh, I was just going to say with the tube bender, I tried to do that once I tried to like, I, I could use my imagination cause the tube bender that I make the, mm -hmm. the motion isn't that complicated. So I just needed to do like a real world check, but I was like, I should make it fully linked so that the model actually moves according to reality. And like, it was too hard. I couldn't get it. Like, I don't know. I just, I, I said, it's not worth it, but I banged my head against the wall for a while. It was right. kind of tricky, but you were saying your friend helped you. Uh, I have a friend who works for um, for Blue Origin actually oh, cool. um, in Seattle, and so he he wasn't as familiar with Fusion 360, so he he took my model and converted it into what, I forget what program they use. Um, so he converted it the first time, um, and then ran it through the full stroke of the shock um, to to check my clearances, and I and I knew we were good then. Um, but then I was like, man, I really wish I could figure this out in. Um, in Fusion, and eventually I played with it enough. It definitely was not easy. Yeah. Um, probably easy for somebody who knows it really well, but it, it wasn't easy for me. I, I eventually like got it to work. Um, I'd have to like go back to my notes again to see how I did it. Um, but but having that tool and being able to access and um, as I was changing things, I would then go back and cycle through again um, just to make sure I was keeping my clearances right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it, it was a huge asset to have that. For sure. Yeah. I think if, if I was going to try and design the, you know, full suspension frame, that's like job number one is like, learn how to make motion assemblies, not break and how to do them correctly. And I'm, I'm sure that there's so much more there than I realized, but yeah, I just kind of struck out. I kind of gave up cause like the, the juice was not worth the squeeze. <laughs> well, and, um, from, I mean, I, I have only scratched the surface of what Fusion 360 can do, yeah. um, or that's what I'm being told. So I eventually want to get into, um, you know, being able to make the anti-squat, um, the anti-rise graphs within my model, yeah. um, instead of having to go back and forth between linkage. Yeah. Um, and then I think it'll just give me a, it'll just be much more accurate if it's pulling right from here and I'm not, there's, there's no human error, yeah. you know, translating between the two programs. Um, so that's like my next goal. And then on top of that, um, I was talking with, um, Evan at, at Contra again, um, and we were talking about FEA, um, you know, finite and element yeah. analysis, basically just, you know, the stresses and strains on complex, um, complex machines or objects. Yeah. Um, and, and Fusion 360 does that. Um, and, and I can do it in its basic sense, but then once you add all these moving parts, it's, um, it gets pretty complex. Like that's the next, the next thing I want to get into. Um, Evan was giving me a lot of advice just, just from like a research he's done on his own bikes, like where he thinks, you know, there are the, are the largest forces on my pivots, what I could do to help alleviate it. Um, you know, what I could do, um, you know, he's, he's going for that downhill bike certification that they do in Germany oh, where, wow. you know, basically they, they drop, you know, it's, um, they put it in a machine and they're going to put 8,000, um, 
newton meters on the bottom bracket um and see if it explodes essentially um <laughs> and that that's like you know everyone was saying like that, that's like the equivalent of like what rampage guys are doing like you know hucking off 40 foot you know cliffs to flat essentially like no one's really going to experience that force but to get that downhill certification that's that's the requirements these days so um yeah he was giving me a lot of good advice just like from what he could see just looking at my bike where he thinks the stresses and strains would be and so that's the stuff i want to get into next is really um really look at each pivot and each assembly and, and see where the stresses are see where um you know i i try to use my you know hardtail frame building convention um and apply it here and and then kind of took it a step further because we have all these moving parts. So like my chainstay is, uh, is 049 thickness. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably don't need to have it that thick, but I just got nervous and, and doing an FDA, doing a finite element analysis will really help, um, dictate, you know, tubing thicknesses. Am I actually helping by making it thicker here? Am I, am I making it worse? Is it not doing anything? I'm just adding weight to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then where and, and like that, my top, my top pivot is where the highest forces are, are going to be experienced. Um, so what I can do there, you know, like bridge between the, you know, what happens if I bridge the, the C tube and the top tube, um, uh, beneath the top tube, like I did above, um, how would that help or hurt me? Like, um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy what you can do from your home computer these days. Yeah, no, it's wild. The, um, for anyone listening who doesn't know about FEA, you probably would have seen it, the finite finite element analysis, but like in a 3D CAD software where you can see the visualization, you can actually define a load and you can define fixed points or whatever. And then uh, as you apply loads, it'll use like a heat map technology. It'll, it'll color the different parts of it green to red or whatever, depending on how much, what strain they're, they're experiencing or something like that. And that's, that's my like, (laughs) <laughs> layman's analysis so you i think most people would have seen those kinds of graphics here and there um but anyway and what i'm interested in about that is i've never really had much of a need to do that because unlike bicycles which need to be both strong and lightweight uh frame building tools which is the main thing that i've built since i've learned cad software they don't need to be lightweight they just need to be strong and and it's not mm-hmm. even a question of strength it's usually it's just like they need to be rigid and so like by the time you make it rigid it's like a hundred times stronger than it needs to be. Like, it's not going to break. It just needs to like, so anyway, it's a different design consideration. I haven't looked that much into FEA. I've heard people say though, on the one hand, I've heard some people say like, no, you can really derive meaningful information from that. And then I've heard some other people just write it off completely. And so I don't really know what to think because I haven't studied it that much. Well, and um, that was like another part of that conversation I had with, with Evan. That was really interesting. It's, it's only as good as the numbers coming out are only as good as the numbers coming in. So you definitely have to like set up your constraints and parameters really well, mm-hmm. which there are, there are whole companies that will just do this analysis for you of, um, you know, if you have a, a rigid frame, it's pretty easy to tell where your forces are going to be applied. Um, you know, through the tires, you can follow the frame up. It, it's much simpler when you add a moving element to it. Yeah. Um, with the suspension and then on top of that you have a, a moving uh center of gravity in the form of a human on top um as well as it's not only vertical load it's 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 lateral loads it's um is your frame exactly straight or is it a little off center are you are you running um a dish wheel a little bit like all these things yeah. that you have to take into account and 
you need to set up before you even do the analysis. Cause yeah, if I just, if I just took my model I have now without any thought and just like dumped it in and just try to like quickly test some constraints, I'll get numbers and you can probably, you know, mess with it to get numbers that look pretty good. But if you don't have a real life, um, situation constrained in, mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to give you good numbers at all. Yeah. But you, I mean, yeah. I mean, garbage and, and in, garbage there's, out, there's like right? All, it really seems like that would right. be the case with something like this. For sure. And, and, and there's also different, like, there's no one way to consider all these constraints. So yeah. people move their center of gravity. People move, um, well, I think lateral loads are really only applied in this instance or, you know, there's like a million ways and, and, it's crazy how like deep you can get into just like basically the setup of yeah, the problem, exactly. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> so it, I think it would be really it, fascinating, it, but it would be one of those things where it's like your level of confidence that you had defined everything appropriately would need to be mm-hmm. considered when you applied a level of confidence to the results. And so as long as you were like For aware sure. of that basic principle and you didn't take any results any too seriously without first taking even more seriously the inputs, you know, then, yeah, I think, you know, you can derive something because like it might really highlight like a weak spot that was hard for you to notice or you hadn't even considered or whatever. Right. And, and so like, like the 3d printer, like this could be a really good asset, um, to, to weed out, um, you know, some cost costly mistakes. I mean, it's definitely, like we were just talking about, there's definitely some things to think about before you're using it. Yeah. Uh, but it could be another tool um, that is, you know, relatively accessible for most people. Yeah. As long as you say you're a student. <laughs> uh, when it comes, <laughs> when it comes to the high pivot. Um, so I'm really a mountain bike noob, but the, the whole idea is just as your suspension is jostling at a high speed, it's the, the ratcheting action of the freewheel isn't, isn't fighting against your, uh, coasting cranks in your feet, right? It's like to make a smoother ride going downhill over rough terrain. Well, so the, the idea behind high pivot, or at least how I understand it is, um, because of where the pivot placement is, your rear tire, when it, when it's going through its suspension or through its travel, you have a, you have some rearward movement or a rearward axle path. Um, so like if you're going, if you're bombing down a hill and you're having, you know, a bunch of square edge hits coming, um, and hitting your rear tire, um, your, your rear wheel is able to take those forces a little bit better because the, your wheel is actually going to go backwards a little bit. Yeah. Um, but because of, because of that, if you didn't run a chain idler, your, um, your pedal kickback would be really bad because when the wheel moves away, mm, um, yeah. from your, from your chain ring, you're growing your chain, right? So you get, yeah. you get really big chain growth. So your pedal kickback would be really bad. Um, if you didn't, if you didn't run that either and get that chain above your, um, above your pivot or your, yeah, your lower pivot. I see. Yeah. So that's, that's the idea behind high pivot. It's just supposed to make, um, and from the little bit I've written it, I do think it's like a really like badass downhill. Is this the first, this is not the first bike you've ridden with a high pivot. This actually is the first high pivot I've ridden. Oh, cool. Uh, So I, um, during the pandemic, we, we, you know, we traveled a little bit, you know, most people weren't traveling. Um, while I was developing this, I was like, I really need to get out and ride some high pivots. And so we were in like Oregon, we were in some smaller towns in Colorado, like nobody would rent bikes. 
because the <laughs> supply chain was so crazy. They were they were just selling them. So like I like tried several times. I was like, nobody has the hype to it. That will, will rent to me. So finally, I just had to give up, and I was like, I'll just run the one in me. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, now you now you get to try it, and you get to learn from this one. Um, so right, what right. else about the bike? I mean, so so there's like you have to engineer the the components you know you can go to paragon and you can buy dropouts and you can buy bottom bracket shell and all these things for a hardtail some of those would apply to a full mm. suspension just fine but there's a lot of parts that you need to design and as bikes get more complicated and as you get more particular they get even more complicated as you know to yep. uh trying to you know house bearings and and then it's even complicated too with like you know what's the right press fit for something like a pin or a bearing right. or whatever um, so you're like designing all of these pieces from the ground up and then getting them made quantity of one, which is brutal. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yep. then putting it all together. What, I mean, what were the hardest parts of that whole process? Um, I think just trusting that the design, you know, I, I, I look back at the file I have with all the, all the frame or yeah, just the files I have for this. I have like two files now or something, which is crazy. Wow. Um, those aren't all revisions. Those are all like different parts, but, but I probably had like 15 different revisions. Like when I would finally ran, like you had the frame mostly built up and then I was like, Oh, I didn't think about this. And then I'd have to like start changing parts again. And once you change one part, you have to change, you know, a bunch of parts downstream. Um, so I think the hardest part was just like trusting in design and like hitting send to Sean and Adam being like, mm -hmm. well, here's my credit card. I hope I did my homework. <laughs> um, so like definitely the design process was tough. Um, and like certain things that you, like I was really worried about the suspension system and then, you know, getting into like chain line and using the UDH dropout and like things I was thinking about kind of secondary, they all talk to each other. So I would say those, those are big challenges. Like, Oh, you know, in the back of my head, I'm just going to use UDH. So it'll be easy to give you a sub file. Um, and then I got the file and I was like, oh shit, I gotta, I gotta rethink some things about, um, cause I, I designed these dropouts from scratch, um, and had to change them up quite a few times once I got that UDH step file. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, like hub spacing, I, you know, I went with a super boost, uh, super boost plus with a 157 rear, um, an 83 millimeter bottom bracket shell. Um, one nice thing with, with the full suspension frames, I, I didn't have to worry about trying to cram a, you know, a two, six tire, um, into a yoke right at the bottom bracket. That was like the only easy part that I was like, <laughs> yeah, one, one easy win. Like, thank, thank goodness. Um, yeah. but yeah, just like some of the smaller things, like, like chain line of the idler and, um, just learning a lot about idlers in general. Like if I move that idler, you know, degrees one way or the other around that pivot that it's mounted to like you completely change the characteristics um, of the ride um so it was like really interesting to learn about that um but yeah just like everything talks to each other and and then once i had the design set had things ordered i'm like okay how am i going to weld this thing together so then i spent you know weeks just coming up with uh the jig i wanted to weld basically the whole kind of backbone that whole seat tube mm -hmm. um everything is referenced off that C tube. And, and the idea for me was, um, okay, well I'll, I'll get everything welded to that C tube. Um, and then everything will come around, you know, come around it. And I could, in theory, I could 
have a custom front triangle off of that. Um, and, and eventually I want to do it. Um, I'm, I'm going to work on a version two here pretty soon. Um, I'd love to have a production level model for customers, um, by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see if that happens, but I would essentially give them some options on the front triangle. They, they could adjust, um, you know, head to angle, reach stack. Um, and then on the rear end, I would have, you know, basically stock, essentially stock rear end because you can't, you can't really mess with, um, you can't really mess with that as much because then you start changing the kinematics of the actual suspension design. Yeah. Um, but yeah, coming up with like the jig to, um, to be able to weld all that stuff, um, in phase, um, that, that was a challenge as well. Um, I have like a 19, I think it's like a 1940s, uh, power craft wave. It's like a, um, I forget the size. It's, it's pretty small. They like used, um, I think they used to be on naval ships, mm-hmm. um, just cause they were compact and like, like fairly powerful for what they are. Um, but mine is very old and it shows it. So, um, it was definitely challenging to make all the, all the, um, all the jig work for that. Um, and then I was getting pretty, pretty close to the show. I needed to get this thing to painter. So I had a rear jig like ready to go. I just had to make a few more parts and decided I didn't have time to finish it. So I actually used, um, your jig with the rear fixed string to do the whole rear end. Um, and it actually worked out really well. Um, I meant to send me some pictures. I'll send you some pictures. Oh yeah. Um, but I basically had, I have the whole front end done and then I just, um, chucked everything up in, in your jig and then used the, the chain stand and seat stay, um, holders and, and tacked everything, um, yeah, in my, in my Cobra jig. So, um, that, that worked and it saved me a ton of time, um, to be able to get it to the show. Damn. So that was pretty cool. Well then there you go. Now you can use my frame fixture <laughs> to build full suspension bikes too. It's a, uh, I take <laughs> credit card. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, I, I get like, like a percentage off that. <laughs> yeah, no, you get a free commission. I was just telling my friend how I used to work in a bike shop and I would, uh, we sold Konas and every time I would sell like a $500 Kona do commuter, the, my joke with my boss was that if I sold a do, he had to buy me a Mountain Dew. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So that's I'll, the, those, I'll take a Mountain Dew. Those are the kind of commission perks that you need. Uh, <laughs> keeps going. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a really cool bike. It's an impressive build. I was definitely like the uh, the showstopper in your booth and very impressive piece. Who did the paint work on that? Uh, that was uh, Dark Matter um, in Colorado Springs. Cool. Um, yeah, we're we're pretty lucky to um, like I can drive to the to the painter and drop mm-hmm. this thing off and, and then drive and pick it up. Not everybody, not every frame builder can do that, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty cool. And then um, Ashley did the um, Ashley's been doing some of the cranks for ignite. Um, and so he, um, ignite sells that purple crank. And then I drove or I sent that link to, um, Ashley who lives also an hour from me, mm-hmm. um, to match just exactly. Um, and then went to go pick it up. So we have a lot of really cool Colorado people, um, that we're lucky enough to, to use. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some uh, somebody had messaged on Instagram when I reached out for suggestions and they said uh, you should talk about your collegiate downhill racing career, which I don't know much about <laughs> at all. But um, but just more generally how I was referencing before, you know, like I'm really fascinated in like the 
engineering challenges of building something like a full suspension mountain bike, but I would be the wrong person to design it and to develop it because I'm not much of a mountain biker. So, you know, like for you, how has your riding experience shaped, you know, the way you think about developing bikes and iterating on them and right. Like all those things, like, you, you know, that's what you want mm -hmm. is like, if you're going to buy a bike from somebody, you want it to be from somebody who, who knows how to ride that kind of bike and who's discerning. Right. Same thing with a sports car or whatever, you know, like you want to buy from people who right. understand what they're doing in that domain. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I went to the university of Colorado for undergrad. Um, and I played lacrosse for like a year there and realized that wasn't fun. And then, sophomore year started um i was like you know i was i was already downhill and going to going to the bike parks up the mountain um most of the summer anyway and then thought maybe i should join the bike team um so joined the bike team um had a ton of fun um did decently at the races um had a few good finishes and um back then i was on a, a santa cruz v10 when they first came out which is like a was like a pretty cool from like a fabricator standpoint, like a pretty cool bike to look at. Um, it's definitely come a long way from what it was uh, from the original V10. It was just like a monster. I mean, 10 inches of travel in the rear. Um, oh, but yeah, that thing was, <laughs> yeah, that thing was cool. It, um, it, it, it lived a good life until one day I, I tried a pretty large gap and came up a little short and, and snapped one of the pivot <laughs> axles. Yeah. Um, and, Luckily rode out, but, um, yeah, that was the end of the V10. Um, but then I had like a few more, you know, downhill bikes and then, um, so race, race with years at CU, uh, which was a ton of fun and, you know, did, did pretty well. And then, uh, I went to grad school at Virginia Tech. Um, and then I raced there as well, which was also a lot of fun. Um, you wouldn't think about, um, I mean, for, for anyone who hasn't really been down to like that area of the East coast, there's actually a ton of good riding and, and, um, I mean, that's like where Nico Mullaly comes from, you know, world, world cup downhill guy who's also running his own, um, like frame development program. I don't know if you go, if you've seen that at all on, on pink bike, uh, not particularly, I maybe have, but yeah. So, um, um, Isaac Levinson is another like really fast downhill racer who, who started making his own bikes. I don't, I don't know if you've seen him, but. Um, he's an on pink bike and he's, he's a really fast dude who, who races on the pro circuit. And then I guess, um, Nico was like really interested in that and wanted, wanted, I think sorry, I was told one of Isaac to make him a frame that he could race on the world cup circuit. Um, I don't think Isaac had time. So, so Nico hooked up with, um, Frank, you know, Frank, the welder. Yeah. And so, um, Nico and, and there's a team, but Nico and Frank have been, um, developing a frame. Uh, I don't know, a world cup level frame that he's been racing at all the world cups last year. That's um, awesome. And so pink bike's been following with, with a podcast, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so I raced, raced down there. Um, and then moved back to Colorado, uh, pretty soon after grad school. And then, um, me and me and some buddies literally every weekend we go camping in a different part of Colorado and just ride like all the greatest trails, like in Crested Butte, um must be nice durango tell you ride uh <laughs> and it, we, we like living like around denver like you have access to like just so much good riding it's, it's crazy um and so like just like those years of like literally every weekend just riding as hard and fast as you can with your friends like definitely made me a, a good rider and, and 
not only that, like that was at the period where I was like cycling through a bike like every eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, it typically was some version of a specialized because those were just the deals I got. Um, but I got to learn like what I did and didn't like, um, you know, and, and like just through the years, like I was, you know, I was on a 26 inch wheel and then I jumped to a 29 and then I tried 27.5 for a little bit. Um, and so it, it was nice to be able to try new things during that period. Um, but I do think that helps shape like what I like in a bike right now. Um, and then like what I wanted to accomplish with this full suspension. Um, and again, that was to be like the best descender possible, but, but also, um, with, with the way that you're able to manipulate certain things on these high pivots, you can also make a really capable climber. So, um, again, this, this thing is really overbuilt. Um, and, and the weight shows it we're, we're around 40 pounds on this thing, which, um, you know, is, is not where we want the final version to be. I definitely want to lighten it up. Um, but just from what the little riding I've been able to do, it, it's actually a really, uh, a really nice climber. Um, and with like a lot of the mountain bikes these days, they usually come with what they call like a climb switch. So you basically like shut off some of the, um, the, the damping of the, of the shock. Mm-hmm. And so it just essentially stiffens, stiffens the shock up while you're climbing. And I really made a conscious effort to try to, to, to not do that while I'm testing this bike. And it, it actually for a 40 pound bike pedals uphill really well. So, um, I think that is, you know, that really just proved to me that I, that you can mess with certain things like the either pulley, you know, the, the certain placement that you want. Um, to really give it the feel and, and effects that you want it to have, um, which is pretty cool. That's great. Yeah. But then, so, you know, as I was building this thing, um, you know, I know of like things I want to do next time or things I want to change. And so I definitely have like a, um, I'm, I'm really happy with what came out, um, but I do have a list of things I want to, I want to try for version two. Um, I've been looking into maybe 3d printing, um, Nice. some of the parts that were machined yeah um just to to help uh with weight but also or not only with weight but also with uh production yeah. making production a little bit easier um again i was you know i did have a long conversation with evan and um it sounds like he's a little more skeptical of the 3d printing um and there, i think there's a lot more research i need to do personally into it but um just with some of the strength like typically you can only count uh, account for like 70 percent of like a material's like normal strength uh, when it's 3D printed just because of some of the defects, mm-hmm. um, within the, within the, within the structure or like essentially the lack thereof of a grain structure. Um, so I, I want to, I want to look into that more, but, um, I also, I, I got to talk to Chris at 44 bikes at Philly and he had, um, his, his lower pivot has a really nice, uh, a really nicely printed, um, like assembly down there that not only helps, I believe with fabrication, but makes a really stiff, um, really stiff and square, uh, pivot right at the bottom there. Um, and it looked, it looked incredible. He, he had a part, um, not only on the bike, you could see it, but also he had a, an unfinished part that he let uh, people hold and, and the weight on it was, was, you know, incredible for what we were looking at. Um, so I definitely think for version two, I want to incorporate potentially, um, potentially some 3D printing, definitely some FEA, um, to see if I can lighten some things up just as the bike is now. Um, but then just going through the production, if we can make, or if I can make some adjustments to help, uh, produce it a tiny bit easier, um, I think, you know, it'll make an overall better product. Um, but that's, that's where I'd like to take it, um, on version two. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's just natural. You got to iterate. You got to you got to mm-hmm. shoot as high as you can on the first one, and then take all the lessons you can from that and roll them into the next one. And that's the fun of it too. For sure. Yeah. And I do, I do genuinely think like, because of like the 3d printer and all the computer programs and, and, you know, blogs from other builders, like I, I think I eliminated some of the iterations because there's just so much information and so many tools out there. Um, But I mean, obviously you'll, you'll always need more and, and, you know, we could run numbers all day. We can, you know, talk about theory all day, but I really just need to put some time on this bike and, and see how it handles, see how it handles up, see how it feels. Yeah. Um, Cause you can talk numbers all day, but unless you, unless you ride and get a real feel for it and then, you know, let other people ride it and give, give their input. Um, you know, it, it means a lot more when you actually ride it, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I got some other bullet points on the list here that I think we should cover. Um, cool. Well, you, you had said that you went full time, what, at the beginning of this, this year. So like you're coming up on a full year of being self-employed, right? Yep. Uh, I mean, how's yeah, that going on. for you? Like you alluded to that a little bit that you're risk averse and that your wife was supportive, but like, I mean, uh, what, what put you in a position where you felt comfortable to, to do that or made you feel like it was time to give it a try and what have been some things that were easier or harder than you might've predicted and some, I don't know. Uh, um, no, I think that's a good question. Um, so I think, um, one good thing about, I, towards the end of my construction career, like I really hated it. Like I, it it just, it just got to a point where it was not fun. I dreaded going to work every day. So, um, as much as that sucked, I think that really did help me take that plunge. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I was making like, okay, money, but like, you know, at what cost if you're miserable every day, like what is, you know, money is not going to fix that. So, um, I think, Again, that, that sucks, but it was also great because I think it helped me, you know, make that first leap. Um, my wife, um, like if I didn't have a supportive partner, not only just like mentally, like, but also financially, like well, I couldn't do this if she wasn't here. Um, so that, that was a big consideration. And then, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't make the plunge, um, until I kind of, you know, had all my tools paid off. We didn't really need to take any loans to, to jump into this. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew it would be like a slow process, you know, I, I think, um, you know, and, and in talking with other builders, you know, people think like, oh, you're just going to like put an open for business line and people are going to flock to you and just start buying your bikes because, which is, is truly not the case. Um, it definitely takes time to like build up, um, like referrals and, and get your name out there. And, and, um, I think like doing things like the Philly bike expo and, um, you know, Instagram obviously helps with that. Um, but it, it, it takes time and, and you gotta get, you gotta slowly get bikes out there and get, you know, testimonials, you know, hopefully you, hopefully you're putting bikes, um, I mean, you gotta make good product regardless, but hopefully you're getting, uh, things in ha- or products in hands of people that'll want to talk about it. And, um, I have some like really good friends who've been really supportive over the last couple of years, um, who like keep wanting to buy bikes for me and, and, and their friends have reached out and I've, I've had them you know, a fair amount of random people through social media read out, reach out and, uh, want bikes. And, um, it, it's funny, like things I thought people were going to like just fall over for didn't happen in some instances or, or in <laughs> most instances that, that doesn't usually happen, but like things like I, I, my sister and 
two best friends had kids around the same time. And, you know, I thought, I'm going to make them a strutter bike because it would just be a good exercise. Um, if you can weld a 12-inch frame, you can weld anything, um, was, was my thinking. So I, I made three strider bikes for these three people. You know, they cost an absorbent amount of money to make. They were, you know, completely ridiculous. I think they turned out pretty cool. Uh, I made the forks and the handlebars on them. Um, and then gave them to them and I posted some pictures and I had like a hundred people reach out that were like, we want to, we want a strutter bike video. Uh-huh. And I was like, holy shit. I, I had no <laughs> intentions of making these things. Like, uh-huh. like if I give you a number, you're going to want to punch me, you know, through the phone. Like, and so I told him like what it would cost for me to build it. And you know, that weeded out a lot of people, but I still, I think I made like 10 of them. Wow. Um, and, and there weren't cheap, so it was like a it was like a funny exercise to see like what people wanted. Yeah, um, it's so and, hard. And to I'm predict. sure you right. Like you, you can't you can't tell people what they're gonna buy. Yeah, the, you're, then, you're um you are not your customer is one of the things that's hard yeah. for people to understand, and that you know people can mm. tell you what they want, and a lot of times that's not actually what they would pull their credit card out and pay for but but then something else is oddly compelling and says so it's just yeah it's hard right and then um then i so i want i'm starting to get into titanium a little more yeah. and so you know everybody was making titanium hammers at the time and and so i was like oh maybe i'll just make a hammer so like i have this thing at the end and so they're just scrap tie and so i like machined these heads and and made a few for friends and then i posted them and then like somebody in the car world like caught wind of it and then suddenly i had like a thousand people who wanted a titanium hammer, um, which was crazy. And I was like, well, I can't make that many, but I, you know, I made a few and sold a few. Um, and then I don't know if I should say this. I had, I had somebody reach out. I didn't, I didn't know who they were on Instagram, but it turns out to be Jesse James. So Jesse James bought a hammer from me, which, which was (laughs) pretty wild. That's wild. Um, his Instagram was like Pope of welding. And I was like, who's this? And then like two days later, I looked, I was like, Oh, it's Jesse James. Wow. Monster garage. Yeah, no, I definitely watched Um, monster garage when I was in middle school. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty funny. But yeah, it's like, um, I, you know, it definitely takes time to like build your name and, and, you know, get a reputation, which, uh, which I don't, I I think that's the way it should be. Like, you don't want to, yeah. just dump a bunch of unproven bikes out there. Like you want people to, to be stoked on their bikes. And, um, and I, I have, a um, some neighbors, so we live up in the mountains, you know, kind of by nobody. And we've, we've become friendly with some, um, people who are similar age, uh, just had their first kid and, and the husband wanted to buy a bike for me. And I'm like, sure. Hell yeah. And, you know, he, I got on the bike. Um, he let me use it as a show bike for a show, which was cool. And then, I hadn't heard from him for like two weeks when he started riding it. And I was like, Oh God, he hates it. And finally caught up with him. Uh, we went for a ride. He's like, dude, this thing is amazing. I haven't touched my full suspension in weeks. He's like, I have so much fun in it. And I went riding with him and he was just like, you know, like jibbing off every rock and root and like just having like a blast. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he was, he like couldn't have been more complimentary. So it was like pretty cool to see that, you know, not only, you know, did we make like a cool brand? We made a cool bike that he actually like feels better on and feels more confident and like has fun riding. So like, I think it's important to, to, you know, get your bikes out of people who actually ride. Yeah. Would you say that, uh, in your experience, the time that you spent 
I mean, you're, you know, riding bikes is social. So like you go on rides and you've said this, you go on rides with other people or, uh, you know, you raced with other people that you knew who now live probably in all other parts of the country, the people that you raced with in college and the people that you rode with when you were in grad school. Now your people network through cycling has probably been pretty big because of all those years. And you said people that you worked with even like, do you feel like all the years leading up to doing what you're doing now with that networking, all the right, like that, that has something to do with some of the orders that you've taken. Right. Um, I'm not, well, most of my orders, well, initially in the first few years, definitely from friends. Um, but it, it's funny that you mentioned that this didn't necessarily result in an order, but, um, a friend that I went to high school with, um, and then raced a little bit at Virginia Tech with, he um, he actually works at Industry Nine. Oh, cool. Um, so when I was at the Philly Bike, and we you know we've we've kept in touch, um, you know here or there in the last few years, and then um, he saw I started making frames, and so we we were going to do some you know some trades for a frame and a wheel set, um, but then I, I you know I they had a I nine had a pretty big booth at Philly Bike Expo, so I was talking to them about Burke and um, he's, he's in North Carolina. So he's worked with I nine for a bunch. I think he even worked with the King Creek guys for a little bit. Um, but then he got really into photography, like bike photography. So he like traveled all around and he was at the rampage and um, I think some other free ride events, like taking crazy photos. Um, so I definitely have kept in contact with a lot of the bike people in industry that I've met. Um, and then I, um, I also worked, um, at a bike shop in Boulder called University Bicycles. Um, that's like a, a pretty, uh, pretty well-known shop in the country. Yeah. Um, and so I've kept in contact with a lot of those people and, and like a lot of those people have like, are like, you know, soaked on what I've been building and, and they'll definitely like share me and, and uh, on Instagram or talk to other people about it. So like that's definitely generated orders as well. Um, but I think, um, oddly enough, like Instagrams generate a lot of orders for us. That's great. Um, and yeah, like word of mouth. So I've, I've, had, I've been fortunate to have a lot of Colorado orders. Yeah, no, your uh, your work looks great on Instagram. And yeah, I think Colorado too. I'm not, um, I guess what I'm getting at with that sort of question is just that, you know, I think when, because this is a common thing for new builders and I really struggled with this when I was trying to build bikes is a lot of people, it's like, you know, okay, so like maybe part of what you need to sell on as a frame builder is like some experience that you have, but like then how do you get the ball rolling, mm -hmm. right? And so I think something right. that I've noticed that a lot of builders will say that now in hindsight, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> it's just like if you if you go if you go to all the races and you go on all the rides and you have a big people network and you've been in the cycling industry or the cycling community for like years or decades. And you just know tons of people in tons of places, even if they're not directly customers, but yeah, like maybe they, maybe they're mm -hmm. just fans and they want to see you succeed and they mention it to other people. I feel like that people network that you build can be really, really valuable. It also like living yeah. in a place like Colorado. I mean, like what an excellent place for riding where you're just going to bump into people too. I think when right. I was getting started, I was young, so I hadn't been cycling for a super long time, and I was like a total cheapskate. So like, and I was living in a place that wasn't like a huge uh, 
hotbed of like cycling like people ride bikes in central new york state but it's not like a, like a cycling destination like colorado or something and so anyway right. uh that question which i know is is like forefront for a lot of new builders is just like how do you get the ball rolling at all and i i think that that people network has a little bit to do with it whether they're just cheerleaders for you or whether it's people mm -hmm. that you know who are like they can't wait to even place an order or something i think that has right. something to do with it and then that's not all of it either Right. No, sorry. I, I get what you're saying now. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Like even, um, like I have several good friends who ride a ton and, and right, like you're saying, just a baseline, like Colorado has such a biking, um, like community, like you can go anywhere in this state and somebody's mountain biking. That's so awesome. like a baseline, like it's a great, yeah, it, it's an incredible spot to be at. Like, so the, the house that we bought, we, we live in Pine, Colorado, we live at the, um, basically the trailhead of, it's called Buffalo Creek, which we have like 50 or 100 miles of trail just like within our little area. And then it also connects to the Colorado Trail. And every weekend, like during the summer, like it is a parking lot of people coming up to ride our trail. So like when I have, you know, five or so friends, like fast friends who are riding our bikes at these trailheads, you know, or, or in Crafted Youth that weekend or in Telluride, like, I've gotten a ton of interest just from people seeing our bikes out. And then like, um, you know, I have good, I, my friends are good riders. They have, you know, the bikes work well with them and, and, and then they can see the quality like outside, um, like on the trails. I, I do think that's like another thing. It's hard to, um, it's hard to show somebody the quality if it's not in front of you. Like you could, you can take amazing pictures, but unless you're able to like, you know, look at it and touch it a little bit and, and, you know, see it out in the world, it's kind of hard um, and, and, and especially like, you know, as a frame builder, it's tough. You, I, I'd love to offer, you know, the cheapest frame possible, but just, just the way the world works and material costs, like yep. they're going to be more than, than a Taiwanese frame. It's just the way it is. So it's understandable that people want to see these bikes as much as they can before they commit to them. Um, so I do, I do think like what you're saying, like, yeah, my network has definitely gotten my, you know, the, the word of our brand out there for sure. And it's yeah. definitely, um, like Instagram's one thing. I think Instagram, uh, it'll get you followers and it might get you like, you know, some looks and, um, I've definitely generated orders through it, but, um, having bikes out there in the world that people can like see, like, in, like, you know, from my network. And then we have this crazy Colorado biking network. Like I, I can't imagine, I mean, I don't know the bike scene, what it was like around you, but I can't imagine it was like Colorado. And no, like, it like wasn't. Definitely. That would be like way, right. It'd be way harder to get the name out there. I know. Yeah. And, it's, <laughs> it's like, I, I, you know, it's like you make these trades in life and like, I always wanted to live where cycling was like a nicer place. And, but I wasn't already there. I didn't really know people there. It mm -hmm. certainly costs more, a hell of a lot more money to live in a place like Colorado or right. something. And so, you know, I took advantage of the benefits that where I was at afforded me, which was like, I had a shop space for like almost zero overhead. So that was amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those things were really great, but when it came to like trying to sell a high end product and also like I was a young person who I couldn't sell anything, you know, like I, I had no sales experience. I certainly mm -hmm. didn't know how to sell anything expensive. Like, I think it's not that you're trying to trick somebody into like, <laughs> I fooled you. That's not it. It's just like, right. you need to believe in the thing that you're trying to sell, that it actually has value and that, you know, you're whatever. Anyway, like there's a lot of reasons why I struggled, but even even if I was to do it today, I mean, you know, I think frame building businesses are hard. And I think 
uh, there's a lot of reasons why they're hard, but one of them is sales and a lot of people struggle with that. So I just, you know, I like to kind of mm-hmm. talk about that some with guests on the show to, you know, cause we can all, you know, learn from each other. No. And, and also like just the, like part of, part of, I think my selling point in, in our brand is, you know, we're made and we're tested in Colorado. Like I, I've ridden in Colorado for most of my life. Like I have been to most trails in Colorado. Like, so I have that experience, but also like, like from somebody on the outside, like to buy a mountain bike from like somebody who's in the middle of Kansas, it would be like a little, like no knocking anybody in Kansas building frames. But like, for me, I'd be like, in my head, oh, what do they really know about like mountain biking? Mm-hmm. Camp, yeah, right. You know? Yeah, or like so it's, it's it's for you know single track and a relatively whatever like in the woods or something, and it's not not for right. actually like downhill. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely def- like the the company that you keep or have. I definitely think is a is a big factor. Yeah, cool. Um, another yeah. thing I had on the list is just running a biz you know, is, is a struggle. And I definitely, that that's something that people request that I talk about on this podcast. And I'm really interested in business because I run one and all that, but, uh, the frame building Mm -hmm. business specifically, now you had all these years of project management and the more that I learn about management and books that I read, I mean, really it's just, you know, it's whether it's financial management or whether it's like the way that you manage Mm -hmm. like physical resources or human resources, it's all, if you zoom out enough, it's all kind of similar. So I would have to imagine. Right. And did you get an MBA or what did you go to grad school for? Uh, I did. I got an MBA and then a master's in, in civil engineering. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure some of that is at least sort of relevant to the, the, you know, managing, right. managing your own time, disciplining yourself about what, what actually needs to happen and managing your resources mm-hmm. and, I mean, some of that stuff sounds kind of boring to people who just want to like go out in the shop and weld. But I think it's important because what it does is it facilitates the the possibility that you might work for yourself, stay at home, see your family, make something that you're proud of, work with your hands. And so, like, if that's what it takes, you know, wouldn't wouldn't it be worth it? Right, and and, and um, like I, everything I did in construction, as far as project management, like it, it's still really carries over on a smaller scale it carries over to to the business that i'm running now like i i use an incredible amount of spreadsheets still because that's just how yeah. i operated when i was in construction Hell so yeah. i have way more spreadsheets than you'll ever want um but it's 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 funny because you know it, all that stuff takes time right and and so i was listening to that um the, the austere manufacturing yeah. uh, podcast that you just did and and i would there was a part that like resonated with me was um, kind of that permission to, to do development or, or, you know, research or work on another, you know, project or, or like uh, process improvement. Um, so you, you guys had like a long talk about that. And I, and it got me thinking it was like this full suspension frame that I did. I was only doing on nights and weekends. Cause in my mind, like that was an extracurricular thing and I just needed to work on customer bikes. But in, in reality, this helps my business. Right. Yeah. So it was like really interesting to hear you guys talking about that. And then like even taking the time to make a spreadsheet easier for documenting build kits or geometry or uh, my inventory, like taking time to do that. I always thought like, oh, that's extracurricular. That's, that should be done when I'm not actually producing things in the shop. Like that should be like 
when everyone's asleep, I'll do that. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, those are, those are staples of the business. And if you don't have those, mm-hmm. um, you know, nothing else is going to function or, or there's going to be screw ups along the way. Yeah. So I think that that's like something I've definitely had to learn throughout this business process is it, it's more than just welding bikes every day. Like, yeah, completely. you know, well, welding and fabricating is a large portion of it, but there's also a large portion. Like I have many, many whiteboards around me all day. I have, I have checklists that I have to check off. I have like, like I said, again, like a million spreadsheets that, you know, for each frame I have, you know, a bunch of files. I need, I need design time on bike CAD. Um, sometimes I need, you know, fusion designs for certain bikes. So all these things play into it. And then also, you know, financials schedule, you got to get everything to the painter on time. Um, you got to get the right materials on time. Well, you know, are these materials in stock? Are they not? Are there other spots you can get it? So, you know, it's, um, it's a lot more than just building bikes. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. And it's, I think that's what makes it, you know, fun and then not fun at sometimes. Cause yeah. I think if you're only doing one task, then you kind of get, you know, you get bored of it. So I do think it's, it's good and bad, but, um, yeah, there's, there's just a lot more to it. Like there's a lot more than you just, you know, machining all day. Like you, you have to worry about supply chains. You have to worry about your process. You have to worry about, Oh, is, is material going up in price? So I need to look somewhere else. Like all that stuff behind the scenes that nobody will ever really see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's hard. Cause that's, that's just the nature of like, you know, being your own boss, running your own thing. It's just that like it, none of it happens unless you do it or you delegate it. And can you even afford to delegate it? So, like, right. Uh, yeah. But, but also I think like, um, in the first couple of years of frame building and, and I just what, what I've discovered, like you have to, um, like it, it, it's, it takes years and years to fully get like your dial process down. Right. And you know, my process I, I have pretty figured out, but like I just ordered a new die for me the other day mm-hmm. because somebody, you know, these are all custom frames. So somebody threw a little curveball at me. They wanted, um, you know, they're really, they're really worried about the, the Q factor of a fat bike. Um, and you know, if I can run 120 millimeter bottom bracket shell gravy, it's, it's easy. I can fit any tire in there, but they wanted a hundred millimeter bottom bracket with, uh, it, that can fit a five Oh tire inside there. Wow. Okay. Well that gets a little tricky. I need to look at, you know, what bends can I make work? Will this work? You know, they also want a really short end. So like those things keep coming up. Um, and so I think that like, not eventually I'll have seen most things, right. But that, you know, that'll take years and years. Um, and then I can always look back and see what I did for that, for that particular problem. Um, but also when you in that podcast, um, I, I took a lot of notes when I, when I listened to the podcast, uh, with austere, you, you guys, uh, a lot of it just really resonated with me. Yeah. Um, you guys, uh, um, said, you know, business, these type of businesses are, are the business of solving problems. And that's like, that's what we're doing. And that, I think that's, that's why this is interesting. Like your, your bender solved a problem. Like me buying that die for your bender was solving this issue I had uh, that I hadn't encountered yet. Um, but solve this issue I had about getting a five Oh tire, uh, with a hundred millimeter bottom bracket. Um, and I think, I think, you know, while I'll, you know, huff and puff a little bit when I first encounter the problem, that's what, that's what keeps this fresh and makes it fun. It's like the constant challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like, 
you kind of want to be right in the middle of it. You don't want to be so that everything is a total chaotic mess all the time. But if it was ever just mm -hmm. straightforward and boring and there were no crises, it would, it would like, where's the excitement? <laughs> where's the drama? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's like, that's what you live for is like, uh, figuring out the next thing or something. So, and I think Adam Sklar well, said that to me years ago that like, cause I think a lot of people, they're like, Oh, I just want to, I just want to, you know, make a, it's like, I just want to weld the bikes. Come on. Or like, I just want to fabricate, make mm -hmm. the bikes. I don't care about doing the, the accounting and like, I don't want to market things and like all this stuff. Uh, it's a common sentiment that people have. And I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, but he said something to the effect of like, well, it's all problem solving. He's like, I mean, he went to engineer mm -hmm. school and, and he's like, I like problem solving. And so like, you know, if marketing is a problem, then like it has a solution and like, I got to figure it out. And it's like, it kind of scratches the same itch. And I think that's mostly an attitude thing. Like if you have the right attitude about it and you see it as an opportunity to like innovate and it's not, it's easier said than done, but like, that's, it's pretty satisfying when you, when you can see every, every problem as like an opportunity for like a fun solution. Right. Right. Well, it's, and it's like in any industry or job you have, you're going to have these problems. That's, if you're not having problems, then again, yeah, then you're just lying to yourself. But it's like when you're a little kid and it's like, you're learning to count. It's like, well, let's do something that you like, because then it'll make it more interesting and, and you'll sneakily get it. So, you know, how many apples are there? You know, five apples, whatever. But it's like marketing is not something I'm not interested in, but marketing bikes, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Or like, it's you know, like, mark, marketing your tools. Like that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like you get to talk to your customer who shares an interest with you and you, if they're, if they are your right customer, you know, like, like one of the things in sales that I've learned, not that I'm a sales whiz, but it's like you have to qualify your prospect. And if somebody is not a good prospect, like they're not they're not a good fit, like it wouldn't make sense for them to buy it. You just cut your losses. You say, oh, that's right. great. Thanks. Have a nice day. <clears throat> and you don't try and shove crap yeah. down their throat. And if they are a good mm -hmm. prospect and they might actually be a great fit for your product, well, then you get to like talk to them about something that relates to their personal life and what they have to gain and why it might be right for them. And like, hopefully you understand what they go through every day and like, oh, it's kind of fun. You know, it's like, it's nice to be a resource to people. It's nice to learn about their specific uh, problems and interests and needs and like, see whether it is a good fit. Like, why wouldn't that be fun? I like talking to people. I like shop work. I like frame builders. I like learning right. about, you know, sometimes people have ideas for my products for tweaking and improving. And I say, wow, I didn't think of it that way. Cause I haven't built that kind of bike that way. That's a great idea. Or that's a better idea than this. Or, you know, I included some feature that somebody figured out how to use that. I just never even would have thought of, but like it works that way. So that's cool. Right. And, um, like, to your, to your point of like, well, if you're really interested in the thing, like I, I had a guy I'm talking to about a fat bike right now. And, and, you know, he, he raised the issue that he has like some neck and back issues. And so he's like, that's not really, you know, not really your problem to worry about. And I like cut him off. I'm like, no, 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 that, that is my problem. Like, let's, let's talk about this. Like, let's get you a bike fitter. Like I'll talk with a bike fitter. Like, and like that, that was an issue, but like, that's, it's an interesting issue to me. Like, no, let's figure this out. Let's, let's talk to somebody who knows, what's going to alleviate pain and make you have more fun on a bike better than the two of us talking together. Like I, I have, I have ideas of what would make it more comfortable, but let's, let's get this bike fitter in the Like, let's go send you to a bike fitter. Mm -hmm. I'll talk with them. Let's, let's get some geometry. He thinks is going to work. I'll, you know, I'll, you know, do some designs and see if he likes what I'm coming up with. Like that's an interesting problem. And because I like the subject matter, like 
Yeah. Like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, I don't, it's not good that he has back problems, but like, let's, <laughs> let's figure this out. So it's, it's, it's good if, if he gets a new bike that solves the problem, that's what's good. So it's like, what leads to that? And, um, yeah, that's great. I want to, I want to round this out here and I want to ask you one final question, which is, um, <laughs> what do you got against e-bikes, man? <laughs> So when we came up with acoustic cycles, the idea was, you know, acoustic being like simplified, like stripped down, like thinking about, um, I, I do think biking is a social, um, is a social event, but in some instances, mostly I like to ride bikes to get out into nature, be away from big groups of people. Like I, I typically bike with like one or, the, one or two other people. Um, bigger group rides aren't necessarily my thing. Um, so like that was kind of like the driver behind acoustic. It was like simple, kind of out there on your own. It's just you and a bike. Um, it was kind of like a, a joke, like a little dig at e-bikes. I have no issues with e-bikes. I think e-bikes are great. Um, I know tons or not tons. I know, I know a lot of people who've, um, you know, maybe the older generation or I know people who, who have certain ailments that they can't get out and ride unless they have an e-bike. And I also know people who just want to be able to go further, farther, uh, longer, who ride e-bikes every day. And I think that's great. Um, yeah. I, I, I have nothing against e-bikes. I'll, I'll probably build an e-bike one day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, it was a little e-bikes. funny. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a funny little. And um, when, we, when an, uh, Pink Bike put an article up, there were a few people that were like, why do they hate e-bikes? And I was like, oh, God. But um uh-huh. They had, their comments ended up being okay, but uh, yeah. it was pretty fun. It's the the MTV unplugged version uh, of the the e bikes. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, our, our comments, so our comments didn't get shut off, so like that's a good sign. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I think that covers most of it. I mean, it's cool to hear your story, and especially how you know having having a job that satisfied some of your basic needs, but but left other you know like you were, you just wanted to like get into your own shop and do things on your own terms and now you've done that you've had the opportunity to like take it your own way and that's i don't know it's cool like to see how that's gone for you well yeah thank you i appreciate it and uh, it was definitely fun to talk to you and um yeah i hope to keep making some cool bikes and we'll see i want to get this full suspension to uh to a level where i'll start offering it to customers so um, I never thought I'd be saying that a couple of years ago, but it's pretty crazy to to say that now. Yeah, you've done a lot of high caliber work in a very short period of time, so I feel like you know if you extrapolate that out another five years, uh, it's going to be pretty exciting to see you know what you're working on at that point. So keep it up, man. Well, thank you. Thanks Appreciate for, that. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for talking, and uh, I'll talk soon. All right, sounds good. Thanks. Yep, bye.